Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everyone. So glad that you're here. Good morning to all of you watching and listening online, to you at Port Perry. Good morning to you, and good evening to all of you at Bowmanville. We're so glad that you're also joining us. Last week, I started preparing us for Easter by saying that if you've ever had the great privilege of traveling, whether by car or minivan or train or airplane, to enjoy the trip at its end, you need to do all the work before you go. You, you need to Google where you're going. You need to watch videos before you go. You buy tickets. You get a passport. If you're trying, traveling internationally, you pack. You make sure you have the right flights. And you do all of this prep and all of this work. So when you actually arrive at your destination, you can fundamentally at your core rest and enjoy what you've prepared to do. So the same with Easter. In three Sundays, we will be gathering across all our sites and joining the global church in all of its forms to celebrate, to confess and confirm that Jesus Christ was who he claimed to be and that he is physically risen from the dead. So to prepare for that greatest of celebrations, to prepare for that most epic of parties, we're going to come back for the last time this year to 1 Corinthians that fully explain this most amazing of events. And as we understand them and as we have better comprehension of the resurrection, we will be able to gather, no matter what site you will be attending, we will be able to come to Easter ready and filled with understanding and thankfulness and life and hope and also real God-given expectancy. Earlier this week, the snow was still flying. It was still a minus something. But I woke up to the sound of birds chirping. Anyone else? And I was like, yes. I got up my white hand came like, you tell winter it is over. Keep going. So the birds were chirping. I was like 7.30 in the morning, like, yes, do this. Now, it's hard to remember what spring looks like the first week in February. The trees look dead. There's snow and ice. There's darkness everywhere. We all had flu that lasted 4.2 thousand weeks and never thought we would get out. And we also, during those moments, never think about the hundreds of millions of seeds that fell naked to the ground in fall. We never think about the life that is underneath our feet all the time in winter. But you know what's going to happen. This will happen to a group of us in the next week or two. You will be walking your dog or walking downtown, and suddenly the uncrackable ground will be cracked by one little crocus. And it will be there, and it will be purple, and you will go, life does exist beyond winter. It will only be there for 2.2 seconds, then it will die. But the point is, it is the signal of something greater happening. And then one day, we will wake up, and there won't just be crocuses, but there will be tulips, and the trees will be budding, and the Singing will be t louder with the birds and we will all begin dancing in the streets. It will be plus one, but we'll be in shorts as Canadians because spring has sprung. Now, the reason why I want that in your mind this morning is that we are living in winter as humans. We are in the time of winter where death has the final say, it seems. But we need to be reminded as we prepare for Easter that death has not won and that spring is coming and the crocus is much larger because it's Jesus who's overcome death and sin. So to understand and prepare for Easter, we venture back for the last time out of this amazing life-changing series we've been doing this year out of 1 Corinthians to remind ourselves of what the resurrection really is. Now this is important whether you're a brand new Christian, you've followed Jesus for years, you're seeking to understand or you're a skeptic. 
Now, to get going this morning, I need to remind everyone of a major problem in the church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. When you understand the problem, you understand Paul's response. When you understand Paul's response, Easter becomes even more significant. There was a group of Christians 2,000 years ago in this church that thought they were Christian, thought they were being Christians, and actually scarily scarily enough were not Christians. They were Gnostics. You say, well, John, what's a Gnostic? Well, Gnosticism, actually, its central teaching was that the Spirit that is, spiritual things were good and physical things are evil. Now, from that teaching, three very unbiblical moments take place in churches. Number one, Christians start believing that their bodies are evil. They're the only the container or the jar of what is good. And so your soul, your spirit, the psyche of who you are is good, but the material universe and your body is bad. So physical bad, spiritual good. Second of all, salvation then wasn't through Jesus' death or trusting in him. It's special gnosis. That's the Greek word for knowledge. That's how you get saved, and you get free from this encumbrance called your body. And third, the most terrifying implication being taught in churches only 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus is Jesus was not fully human. He only appeared human, and he did not actually have a physical resurrection. It was only spiritual. These so-called Christians in Corinth, thinking that the physical was bad and the spiritual was good, begin to teach people to live in two different ways. Your view of resurrection affects how you live. So one group said, since your body is bad and your body is evil, what you need to do is beat it down and keep it controlled. And so anytime you have a sensual thought, just beat it down and reject it harshly. The larger group in Corinth went the other way. They said, use your body for pleasure. Use your body for pain. Do whatever you want with food or sex or money or power. And you still can claim to be a Christian no matter what you do to your body because your body and what you do with it cannot affect the true you inside. In other words, your body and your gender and all physical things are not the true you. Only the spirit inside of you is the true you. And Paul has come along again and again and said that is fundamentally religiously unchristian and fundamentally pagan. And so he once again decides at the end of the book to actually connect our life, our Christian walk, our hope, our suffering, and our, and our resurrection to Jesus' own physical resurrection. Now remember what we heard last week if you were with us. We got the summary of the whole faith. 1 Corinthians 15.3, what I received, Paul writes, I've passed on to you. And it's of first or chief importance. That Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That, by the way, is the summary of our whole belief. Jesus came to take our place because we had sinned against God. He takes the bullet we deserve. He pays off the mortgage we could never pay off. And when he does that, part of that deal is death. Jesus physically dies, and then Jesus is buried. But then it's declared that Jesus came back to life. Unlike all other human beings that have ever lived or will live, Jesus is the only one who comes back from the other side permanently. And not like 30 seconds in some operating table where he sees a light and comes back and says, oh, let me tell you about this light. Not some form of scam. And remember, this is 2,000 years ago. There is no form of medical resuscitation through machine. Jesus is dead. One day, two days, three days. Dead, 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 and then physically alive. Now, Paul comes to the second half of this passage, 1 Corinthians 15. I invite you to turn to your Bibles if you got one. And he keeps speaking about the resurrection of the dead. After establishing the resurrection of Jesus as the foundation, as the heart and jugular of our faith, after he took so much time to work through the historical evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, then he asks the next, answers the next logical question. 
So if you're telling me, Paul, that that happened to Jesus, and then you say it's going to happen to me, what, is it, what happens, what does it look like, and what does it feel like? In other words, what type of upgrade do I get? So you just use a car analogy. You may say, well, my body feels more like a fit. I'd really like a Lamborghini. Is that the upgrade I get in the next life? You know, I'm sort of in a Honda Civic model. I'd really like an X5, God, or this. Hey, hey, Jesus, it's John Thompson. Thanks for this, but I was wondering if I could get the like, George Clooney upgrade in the next life. Would you be, be okay with that? Now, some people in the church are genuinely asking that question, but most are not. Most are asking but not asking because they're Gnostics and they're anti-Paul. So Paul sharply responds like this in 1 Corinthians 15.35. Now some people are asking, how are the dead to be raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, he writes. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Have you left your senses as a Christian? Why are you thinking like a religious pagan? You left all that and now you're a follower of Jesus. God is in the middle of this story. If you really want to know about the resurrection, all you need to do is look around you all the time. It's in your hand, it's in your life, it's in your experiences. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, just like a seed, perhaps of wheat or another plant. But God gives it a body just as he's determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. He says, look at every tree when you drive home today. Look at every bush, every plant all around you. This will give you absolute insight into the resurrection. When you bury a seed, it looks like it has died. Then out of that seed and out of that pod and out of that shell, and notice this, on that very spot where that seed was buried in the cold, unforgiving, wet, dirty ground, new life will emerge. Now it will look different, but it is the same plant because the seed has the same DNA as the thing that sprouts up. Seeds fall, seeds are buried, seeds die, seeds come back to life, seeds are transformed. And Paul says, so the same with us who are Christians. We will die physically, but out of our death, there will be a new physical resurrection, and it's going to be us, very similar, very different. So when you meet me in the new heavens and the new earth, and you say, hey, John, remember we used to hang out in that church called C4 in 2018? I'll be, yeah, you'll recognize me as who I am, and I will recognize you, the same yet different. Now, this image of the seed should give us all pause, by the way. Never forget that this amazing work of life in the seed is never controlled by the seed. The seed goes naked and alone into the ground. It's left outside by itself. It has no control over soil, water, sunshine, or seasons. But suddenly, life still comes out of it. So the same with us. We go into death naked, and we all die alone. And we cannot control what comes next. But the good news of Christianity is that God is the one who keeps on working. And he is the one who's going to bring new life out of that moment of death. Paul says, am I helping you understand? He says, well, let me keep going. Let me use another group of analogies. He says, you know, not all flesh is the same. People have one type of flesh and animals have another, birds another and fish another. There are heavenly bodies. There are earthly bodies. There are splendor of the heavenly bodies of one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon has another. The stars another. And star to star differ in their splendor. He says, you who are struggling with this idea, you who cannot, whether seeker or Christian, imagine what the resurrection of body will feel like or look like, just look around. God, our great creator, has created all sorts of bodies, and each is made for their own environment. So animals to land, fish to water, bird to air, stars in the space, angels in the heavens. So we will be given a new body that will be able to live in the new heavens and the new earth. 
so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it will be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Unlike your body right now, or my body, which is limited by sin and death, actually our new bodies will not. At this moment, we're all marked by dishonor. Every single one of us has sickness, mental or physical. We've all been touched by sin, lost dreams, and dashed expectations. Actually, everyone within this church and every human being on earth right now has been touched. And we have one common starting point together, and it's called regret. You wanted children and you couldn't have them. Regret. You had children and you lost them. You, you lost a chance to reconcile with a loved one or, or a friend before they died or moved away. You regret what you said to someone. You, you cannot believe what you did so long ago or recently to someone. We all have lost dreams. We all have lost ambitions. We all have lost opportunities. Many of us struggle with the lack of justice in the world where people are still alive today, getting away with so very much, and it is wrong, and we have to live with the consequences of their sin. And all of these different uh, experiences form the great web of hiddenness, secrets, and wounds that touch the human family. See, the human family relates to that song I heard for the first time a few weeks ago when I went to go see The Greatest Showman, and the cry simply cried out, we want to have the ability to what? Rewrite the stars. And I thought, oh, see, that's it. We as human beings want the ability, the second chance, the opportunity, the chance to rewrite what is. I know it's hard, but do this this morning or this evening, would you? Think about the most regrettable thing you've done in your whole life. Don't enter into the emotion of it, but just acknowledge it. Maybe think about the most regrettable thing done to you. Think about the most painful moment in your life. Think about the worst loss you've ever experienced. Feel the weakness of it. Acknowledge the dishonor of the moment. Know the perishing of it. And then hear these words. The Bible is absolutely, joyfully, lovingly declarative that all of that that you just felt and thought about will be healed, washed away, restored, and reconciled because our new bodies will be fitted and designed for eternity. We at this moment are finite. We at this moment are fallen. We at this moment are perishable. But Paul writes this amazing thing under the inspiration of the Spirit where he says, but we will be raised in power. We will be raised glorious. We will be raised strong. And we will be raised imperishable. We cannot rewrite the stars, but Jesus has already done that by his own resurrection. We will be very same and very different. No more sickness, no more loss, no more death. And Paul says these words, do you actually want to really know now? Have I piqued your interest to truly understand what you're about to celebrate in the next few weeks? Are you interested as a seeker or skeptic? He says, then you must go back to doing something that is so uncomfortable. You must contrast the two atoms. We did this last week, and this is what he says in this moment. There's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. So it is written in the book of Genesis, the first man became a living being, and the last Adam a life-giving spirit. Let's go back and hear what we heard last week in 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through one man. For as in Adam all die, so in Jesus all will be made alive. Now like I shared last week, these two verses are fundamental at their core to our faith, and they also reveal our whole movement. 
They outline the great trouble we're all in and the answer we have. Now, some of us have always struggled with the idea, how did Adam and Eve's screw-up affect me? Why am I, if I had been in the garden, I would have made a much better decision. <laughs> Hashtag, yeah, right. So, anyway, I love how one scholar puts this, because we really need, and especially you who are Christians, that have more of the mercy-loving side gifts, you really need to hear this, to embrace the wholeness of our movement. One scholar wrote, Adam acted as the representative of the entire human race. With the test that God set before Adam and Eve, he was testing all of us. You know, Adam's name means man or humanity, mankind. Adam was the first human ever created. He stands at the head of the human race. He was placed in the garden, not just to act for himself, but for all of us. Just as the federal government has a chief spokesperson who's the head of a nation like a president or prime minister, so Adam is the federal head of humanity. When Adam sinned, he sinned for all of us. His fall was our fall. And when God punished Adam by taking away original righteousness, we also all were likewise punished. Now we bristle at this and we, we fight against this. And they say, that's not fair. And what about my rights? And don't you know I am the master of my future? We have been taught rugged individualism. And as the Westerners, if you are Western, you've been taught me first, community second. But actually, that's not true when it comes to sin, salvation, and separation from God. Three things happened when Adam sinned, and this is what I shared last week. Number one, we were given an example to imitate, and all of us have done it. If we are truly honest as human beings, we have all violated God's law. We have all sinned. We have all imitated Adam's rebellion and Eve's rebellion. But we just did not imitate. The Bible says we were infected with something called original sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, they lost the ability to say no to sin. Have you ever noticed that you don't need to teach children how to sin? Ever noticed that? It's just there. I learned it very, I believe in total depravity because I had children. It was right there. And it's so true. We are included, right, in this. And also we imitate this and we're infected. These are the three things that happen. But let me tell you the good news. Jesus Christ is the better Adam. Jesus came and did and undid everything the first Adam did. And what does he do? You can literally follow this. Number one, he gives us a better example to imitate because he never violated the Father's will. Second of all, he actually infects us, but he infects us in the good way. He gives us the ability to say no to sin and actually be righteous because of the Holy Spirit. And third of all, we're included in Jesus. You've heard this. You've grown up in church or we're seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Yes, that's right, because he's the second Adam and we're re-included in the way we used to be. This is the amazing work of Jesus. That's why Paul writes here in verse 46, the spiritual man did not come first, but the natural, and then after the spiritual. The first man was dust of the earth. The second is a man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as in the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. Here's the great verse. And just as we have all borne the image of the earthly men, that's all of us, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly men. See, when you, if you become a Christian, accept Jesus, who is the second perfect Adam, you will be raised just like him. You have all the benefits of his death and resurrection, and you'll have the same body that Jesus had. If you belong to Jesus, physical resurrection is certain and guaranteed. 
Remember that seed? That seed already has the DNA in it to become the plant. If it's an oak, then it's like an acorn, it becomes an oak. And we already sitting here today in 2018 have the DNA in us. You're like, well, John, how do I have the DNA? Because the Spirit of God possessed you when you said yes to Jesus, and the Spirit of God is the DNA of Jesus because he's called the Spirit of Christ, and the Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the dead, and the Holy Spirit's gonna raise you from the dead when you die because he is the DNA where the seed where new life is going to explode, and that's the good news of Easter, right? Fantastic. So then that brings up a new question. You're like, well, okay, if that's all true, then what does the body feel like and look like? Well, to understand the type of body we're all going to get, all you need to do is look at Jesus after the resurrection to see what type of body he had. Let me go to the Gospels in Luke 24, 36. They're sitting in a locked room, and it says while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened. That's the Canadian version of freaking out, thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are your your minds troubled, and why do doubts raise in your mind? Why are you freaking out? And here's, if you know the story, Jesus said, look, I talked to you about this for three and a half years. For three and a half years, you walked around with me, and, and, and I talked to you about me dying and me coming back. She, he's like, okay, I know you're all doubting. I know, I know it's all good. I know you've seen me do some pretty amazing, epic things, like feeding 10,000 people with nothing, and you know, there was the raising of Lazarus and casting out demons. I know, but this is more epic. I understand. This tops it all. So let me help you out. He said, look, look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. Peter, come here. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bone, as you see I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe, I love this verse, because of joy and amazement, they didn't believe because they were skeptics. They were so overwhelmed by joy they couldn't believe it. Then he asked them, "Mm, mm, I'm I'm feeling a little hungry. I don't got Chipotle. I don't got a Big Mac. I I just really need to eat. Can you imagine the moment? Because remember, he just appears in the room. He's there. He's fit. And he's, I'm hungry. They give him a piece of broiled fish, and he eats it in their presence. Jesus is the same person they knew before, but now raised from the dead. And what's amazing, if you read all the gospel accounts, is the only marks left on Jesus' body are on his feet and on his hands as symbols now of victory. All the grotesque, violent, torturous marks that were all over his body are now gone. The only things left on his body are signs of the defeat of sin, death, and the demonic. And yet he's physically right there. John's account fills in the blank. It says in verse 24 in John 20, but Thomas, one of the 12, wasn't there. And then they come and they say in verse 25, we have seen Jesus. And I've preached this before. Can you imagine how offensive that would be? You've lost one of your friends or family members and it's been a horrific, murderous death. And three days later, a group of friends come back and say, hey, don't worry, you know what, they're alive. Do you know how insulting that is? It would be like bad smoke sitting in the air. Thomas responds, out of pain, his body language would have not been open. They say, we've seen the Lord, and he, it, would just, it would have rung so tired in his head. He'd be saying, like, why would friends drag me down this road to experience, you know, PSD, basically, murder and torture and loss of life? If that's enough, and he basically says, Peter, I don't believe you. John, I don't believe you. I don't believe any of you. And then he says these words that I'm so glad are in the scriptures. I love the authenticity of our movement. He says, fine. 
If all of this is true, here's my demands in the situation. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and put, put my hand in his side where he was pierced by that steer, I will not believe, period. Thomas doesn't just demand visual proof. He demands tactile proof. I love when one scholar wrote, no skepticism could be more thoroughgoing than this. And it's perhaps worth noting that no one else in the whole New Testament actually makes a demand like this before believing. He says, I want to see him and I want to touch him. It's like Thomas, by the way, speaks for all of us and speaks for the whole world. I mean, it's just too good to be true. Life after death, maybe, but physical life after death and forgiveness and hope beyond the mundane and justice when there's no justice and all the things that we as humans are primordially fearful of, you're telling me all of that is overcome? Oh, don't misunderstand Thomas's cry, by the way. It's not just rooted in unbelief or modern skepticism. Put it in a clinical trial, and if it's repeated, it's true. It's not that scientism issue. No, it's emotional. It's hopelessness. His doubt is rooted in pain, then worked out in the facts. And as a side note, almost every single person that I interview or speak to or have coffee with who is a skeptic or an unbeliever, and when we get beyond the intellectual debate on the existence of things, what always, almost always emerges is the person saying, but God didn't show up when. The church was supposed to do A and it did B. There's the perception of being let down by God or church or knowledge or others. Most unbelief is rooted in pain, not intellect. Well, God hears Thomas's challenge, sees his broken heart, and sees his loss. It says in John 20, 26, a week later, oh, wasn't that interesting how God's timing is an ours? He makes him wait a week. A week later, the disciples are all together in the house, and Thomas was with them, and the doors are locked. And then Jesus came and stood among them and said, oh, hey, peace be with you. Now, the doors are locked because they're still wanted men, and Jesus comes physically into the room, even though all the doors are locked, and he pronounces peace. Now, knowing all that Thomas has said and all that Thomas has believed, he looks at his friend, his hurt, confused, angry, let-down friend, and Jesus, in great grace and in mercy, and in love, says to him, hey, Thomas, come here. You imagine the moment? Hey, Thomas, for real, come here. Put your finger right here. See my hands. Oh, really? You reach out your, your, you just reach out your hand. You put it right in my side. You stop doubting and, and come to life. Believe. Thomas, is me. Oh, you can put your confidence in me. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to let down. I'm not going to abandon you. I promised I'd never forsake you. So here I am, real in the room. Now, Thomas has a decision. Unbelief or belief. Act or run. Thomas is not as much of a skeptic as he thought he was. And in that moment where Jesus physically comes into the room, here's what happens. Thomas, and don't forget, who is an Orthodox Jew, utters one of the most blasphemous things, unless it is true, where he says to Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. Now, what do we learn from these two small accounts? Well, the body that Jesus had is the body we're getting. Jesus' body is the exact same. So it's real, it's physical, it's tangible, you can eat, you can be touched and embraced, and also epically you can walk through walls. How cool is that? And the whole package, your body and your soul and you as spirit, you are brought back from the dead. Gnosticism's from the pit of hell. This is from heaven. 
And so Paul says, I declare to you, my brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And you're like, John, Paul is so confusing. You just said it was all physical, and now he's saying it's not physical? Mm, No, no, don't misunderstand him. He's saying our bodies as they are now in sin cannot actually live in the presence of an eternal, holy, loving God. But that's not the end of the story. He says, listen, I'm going to tell you a mystery. We're not all going to die but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. When Jesus comes back, and oh, can I say this today? Jesus actually is coming back. There's a second advent, not just the first. When Jesus splits the skies and comes back, those who are followers of Jesus in that time period will immediately be changed and will not die. And all of us, if we're actually already dead by that point, will be brought back physically from the dead and be resurrected. None of this is transition. None of this is escapist. It's on the spot. And then Paul, at this moment, inspired by the Spirit, writes one of the most powerful, clung-to verses read at every Christian funeral. For the perishable must be clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable uh, and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Paul says death isn't in charge anymore. Death doesn't have a permanent say anymore. Hey, death, where's your winning Where's your conquest? Where's your control? Where's your supremacy, superiority? Where death is your upper hand? Where is your achievement? Where is your eternal triumph? Well, it's not there anymore. You don't win death. You don't have the last say. You're you're not forever. You're not permanent. You don't triumph. Why? Because Jesus not only beat you and broke you and vanquished you, he actually swallowed up death whole and dealt with it permanently. It's why actually Jesus in the book of Revelation, when he appears to his best friend John at 90 years old, one of the first things out of the glorified Jesus' mouth, glorified Jesus' mouth is this. It's I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I now hold the keys to death and Hades. Not only was I dead and I've come back to life and not only is it eternal, then he says I've got death and Hades in my hand. Now let me just do something for all of us because we get confused by this. Hades is not the lake of fire. It's not hell. Hades is the waiting place of judgment. And if you read the book of Revelation, it later says that Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. Here's what Jesus is saying. I was alive. I died. I'm alive again. It's eternal. Death has been beaten. And I have the authority to send people into not just physical death, but eternal death. But I also have the power to save people out of eternal death and bring them to resurrection and life. He says, I'm completely victorious and there's nothing else that can challenge me. Then Paul does this really weird thing. He says, all this victory stuff, and then he says, oh, and by the way, let's talk about the sting and injury of sin. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. And you're like, well, hold on. We're on this victory chant. This is really epic. We're about to cross the finish line. And then I'm, what? What in the world is God's law? What is the Bible, God's law, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, have to do with death and sin. And Paul says, oh, see, to understand Easter, to celebrate it so right, to understand the gospel, you've got to have this in here. He says in Romans 3.19, now we know that the law says, that it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world would be accountable to God. Therefore, no one, no one is ever declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. When you open the Ten Commandments and you look at them, 
You will see who God is in his perfection because the law of God comes from the DNA of God. And you will realize how quickly our sin is. You will realize how far we are from God. And see, here's the point. Until you look at the law, you don't know you need a savior. When you realize what God's standards are and who God's is, then you know you have a need for a savior. And it also shows us that we're all in the same level field, playing field, secular, righteous, unrighteous, religious, or spiritual. We've all broken God's law. And at that moment, when you look at God's law in the face and you know how far you are from God and how there's no personal redemption, you can't buy your way out of this or, or con your way out of this, suddenly you run to God to see if he's merciful and you find out he's love and you find out he's given a savior, the second Adam. And when you realize that he actually lived the life you were supposed to live perfectly, suddenly then actually all of this makes sense and deeply and personally and righteously you're changed by Jesus because resurrection and life is yours. That's why Paul says in verse 57, thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, you stand firm. You let nothing move you. You always give yourself fully to the work of God because you know that your labor is not in vain. How do we know that? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. We're going to be raised from the dead. And when we're raised from the dead, we will be rewarded for our work. It is worth suffering on this side of eternity because eternity is forever and this is just for now. Now, why does this have power? I mean, why is this so needed at this moment in our culture? Because it answers two of the most fundamental, significant, large-consuming fears that lay at the center of most of us sitting or standing here today, even as Christians. And it's also shared among all of our neighbors, families, friends, and enemies who are not Christians. We as a culture, lean in, are terrified of the journey towards death, and we're afraid of death itself. Most of us in our culture want to lengthen our lives. We want to be more fit and more active and more beautiful. The cosmetic industry, which is billions and billions of dollars a year, tells us what? You can be young still if you put this on your face. Now, it's fine to wear cosmetics, but I still haven't found that anti-wrinkle cream that works because... Like, we are, ready? Our culture hates aging. Our culture in the West hates the loss of youth and hates the loss of beauty and hates the loss of dreams. We want to deny and fight against and avoid the truth of our fragility. The struggle our culture has with aging is directly connected to knowing that it actually leads to death. Our culture wants to avoid the journey towards death. That is why we're busy, that is why we're entertained. That's why we don't like hospitals. So many people I talk to say, when I see a hospital, I'm just like, mm. See, this is so intriguing to me because actually we don't like the journey towards death and actually we are fearful of death itself. We're not sure what happens or how it will happen if it will be painful when I die. And many atheists and agnostics say, well, it's just the ultimate end. You're worm food and nothing else happens. Others say, well, I know something happens, but I'm not sure what it is. Okay, here's the good news of Easter. And remember, I want to remind everyone within the sound of my voice today, perfect love casts out fear. So lean in for the sake of your freedom. Ready? You don't need to be afraid as a Christian of the journey towards death. Nor do you need to be afraid of death itself. It's okay to age. It's okay to have loss. It's okay to go bald. It's okay. In the new heavens and the new earth, watch out, watch out, watch out. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. 
Our culture is so obsessed. If you're young, I'm so glad you're young. Awesome. If you're in middle life like me, we look like this. If you're age, it's fine. Here's the point. We don't need to spend our life and our money trying to regain something you can't gain. Be healthy, yes, but here's the truth. The resurrection's true. The resurrection is true. It affects how you spend your money. It affects how you do Instagram. It affects everything that you do because here's the truth we've got that no one else has. Jesus promises us that he's never going to leave us or forsake us, period. So if you're young here today, guess what? Jesus is with you. If you're middle-aged, trust me, he's still with you. If you're getting a little older, Jesus is with you. If you're in the winter of your life, Jesus is with you. And here's the difference between us and everyone else. When you are dying, Jesus is with you. And unlike everyone else who does die alone, we don't die alone because Jesus meets us right on the other side because he's never going to leave us and he's never going to forsake us. That's the hope. That's the hope. So we actually need to live our lives in the, uh, the preview of Easter. Our lives are infected by hope. We already have the DNA of transformation and resurrection in us. Our bodies are not to be escaped from or loathed or hated. They're to be embraced. Do not spend your life and your money trying to be something you are not. God has made you who you are and he's going to resurrect you and there's so much freedom in that. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is so imperishable, here's the truth, we will be raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. We are filled in this church with regret. There's so much regret in here, but guess what? It doesn't have the final say either. We will be raised in glory. We've been sown in weakness. Let's just admit it. We're frail. We're here today, gone tomorrow. But we will, if you trust in Jesus, be raised in power. Why does this matter? Because the resurrection of Jesus and the hope that we have at Easter in and around the resurrection of Jesus is actually the expression of the gospel played out in the darkest moments and most painful times of our lives. Paul, writing to another group of Christians near the beginning of his ministry, said this in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Oh, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are already dead so that you do not grieve like the rest of humanity who has what? No hope. Funerals are homecomings for Christians. Do we grieve? Yes. Are we sad? Yes. Do we get to question? Yes. Actually, Christians, you need to question more, not less. Do you get angry? Yes. For you who don't think you can be angry as a Christian, stop it. Read the Psalms. Get angry. But we don't grieve the same way as everyone else does. You have to live in and under and with the hope that Jesus is alive. And in those moments where terrible things happen, where we have no answers, and even life is taken. In those moments, we as Christians get to show and confess and share and point out that what that one famous theologian said is true. The worst thing is not the last thing. We sang it today at all of our sites in that new song some of our people in our community wrote. Jesus, what is a grave but on a hill on which you stand? A solid ground for you to lead your victory dance on. Or to quote the Apostles' Creed, oh yes, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And we believe in the resurrection of the body. And we believe in life everlasting. Amen. So so, hear this today as I end. It drives me crazy when pastors and leaders say stupid things like this. Hey, you're at church today. So glad you're here. Just leave all your baggage outside the doors and come to Jesus. Are you joking me? Don't leave. You can't leave it out there anyway. So stop it. Bring in all your pain and bring in all your fear. 
and bring in all your neurosis and all your concerns about death and bring in all your sin. You bring everything and then you begin to evaluate the power of fear and the power of sin and the power of struggle and the power of sickness in the light of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And watch these things that are real pale in comparison to our risen Lord and his power. Every week when we gather, we meet on Sundays. Do you know why? Because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. And so every week you be a good Christian and a good Christian brings their stuff and their crap to the front and says, Jesus, I'm ready to continually be reassured of the resurrection, reassured of the resurrection every single week. So here's where we end. As we prepare, this is just the appetizer. The real good thing happens in a few weeks. The, the celebration of Easter. But as we prepare over the next two and a half weeks, just start doing this. God, is my fear of death larger than your resurrection? Is my fear of the journey to, to death larger than your resurrection? Am I wasting life because of these things? And then remember these words. What is the result of Jesus' physical resurrection? Well, it's found in the very last book in the Bible where Jesus says, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now you've heard this if you've grown up in church a long time, so you're disconnecting. No, come back. No more weeping ever again. No more death. No more murders. No more funerals. It's done. No more mourning. There is no more regret or loss. There's no more crying or pain because the old order of things has passed away. What started at Easter culminates in that. And we're not different from the world because we're better. We're different because we met the person who changed the world and made us better, right? Would you stand across this whole place this morning? Would you stand in Port Perry and in Bowmanville and everywhere you might be? And can we just take a moment to thank God for what he's done? Thank you, Jesus, that as we prepare for Easter, we do not proclaim our own self-righteousness. We do not say we're good or better or more religious, and that's why we're here. We celebrate the gospel of Jesus Christ that says he died for our sins, he was buried, and three days later, he physically came back for the dead. Lord, for all uh, skeptics and seekers among us that are wondering and watching, and they're more Thomas than they are Peter, would you in the next three weeks encounter them, open their eyes and their minds to the truth of the good news of Jesus? And for all of us who have already embraced you in large or small ways, May we now actually have new freedom. Perfect love casts out fear. And the perfect love of God is expressed in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. So would you begin to undo fear at the core of this church? Where not one person is afraid of death, not one person is controlled by death, not one person wastes their money or time thinking about the journey towards death, and not one person when they face death, as we all will, actually faces it in fear because Jesus Christ has conquered death. Amen, amen, amen. Let us sing to our resurrected Savior. Can you say amen to that this morning? Let's sing to him together. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.